right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Do you realize that two weeks ago we had the third anniversary of the Dharma service being virtual, which means that three years we've been doing this. That's a long time. But you know, I think there's a silver lining to that, and that is that uh, clearly about half of the people that have been joining us virtual are not within commuting distance of the temple. So it means that it has allowed the work of the temple to spread out and include more people. So the topic of my talk this morning is, it is never too late. Now, obviously that statement is not totally true because what's been done in the past can be usually erased or changed. But I'm going to suggest in a moment that there are ways in which the efforts or the effects of past actions can be altered. First, I want to apply this concept to the aging process. As one who is about to turn 85, I'm obviously very interested in that process. The psychologist Eric Erickson wrote about what he called the eight stages of life. And he divided the lifespan into eight different stages. He felt that we all go through those eight stages, each of which has a purpose or goal. He says they're built into our DNA. They seem to be universal. And when we don't achieve those stages, don't achieve the goals of those stages, we suffer consequences. For our purposes this morning, I'm going to mention just the seventh and eighth last stages that Erickson talked about. He felt that during the seventh stage, which is roughly from age 35, 30, 35 until 60 or more, the developmental goal that we need to achieve is what he called generativity. Now, by that, he meant that as we become settled into adulthood, we all have an existential need to feel that something we're doing in life is going to make a positive difference. That can come through our work, can come through creativity, through relationships, but we all need to feel that in at least some small way, I am making a positive contribution to the world and to others. And he said, if we don't achieve that, we will tend to suffer from depression and from a sense of stagnation. Now, I have found this to be a very helpful concept and one that really rings true to me. And I've shared it many times with my uh, clients in therapy and almost universally, the response has been, yes, that's exactly how I feel. Now, generativity does not only relate to midlife. It's something we search for throughout our life, and it certainly continues to be very important in the last stages of life. In that eighth stage, Erickson suggested that we need to achieve what he called integrity. And by that, he meant that as we approach the last years, the sunset of our lives, we need to be able to say, my life has been okay. In spite of the suffering, the mistakes, the regrets, it's been a good life. If we can't say that, he said, then we will tend to suffer from depression and even despair. An older person who cannot affirm the life they have lived will tend to say, it's too late now. I blew it. And here's where modern neuropsychology comes in and I think brings new hope. I've mentioned before here that studies of the brain and the neuroplasticity of the brain, that is its ability to change, have changed the whole way we look at the picture. In the past, we assumed that after a certain age, important change could not occur because the structure of the brain was finely wired and locked into a certain fixed pattern. 
And studies on neuroplasticity have shown us that this simply is not true. Let me give you a couple of examples. From the age of 40, maybe even slightly earlier, our brain cells begin gradually to die. And by 60 or 70, that process becomes accelerated. Hence, you have people like myself who use Google a dozen times a day because we can't remember a name, a place, a film, or whatever. Now, that gradual memory loss is normal. And in the past, it was felt that you really couldn't do anything about it. You couldn't do anything to delay it or change it. But today, we know better. I'm sure you've heard the idea that doing word games and puzzles can help, like, you know, crossword puzzles and so on, can help memory loss, early memory loss. And research has shown this to be true. A neuropsychiatrist in California took a group of people in their 80s and 90s. And he had them spend at least 30 minutes a day for six weeks doing certain puzzles on a computer. He took brain scans of them at the beginning and the end of those six weeks. And what he discovered was that the majority of those people tested actually had grown new brain cells in the frontal lobes of their, frontal lobes of their brain from doing those puzzles. Now that's pretty remarkable and it's really hopeful. So I don't think it'll come as any surprise to you that every morning I do New York Times Wordle, Quirtle, Octortle, and Spelling Bee, because those are ways of trying to keep my brain, and I highly recommend those, they're a lot of fun, and it keeps my brain active. Another factor that influences the rate of brain deterioration in later years is the amount of interpersonal activity that occurs. The worst thing for cognitive decline is isolation. The brain needs the kind of stimulation that occurs when you interact with other people. When that's missing or minimal, there's going to be much more rapid cognitive decline. I've seen this in my own family recently. My brother, Larry, who was four years older than I, spent his adult life as a professor of English literature at the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand, where he emigrated 60 years ago. He, lived in, he and his wife lived in a beautiful home outside Dunedin overlooking the ocean. It was beautiful, a great place to raise their children. But after they retired, it became a very lonely and isolated place. And this took a toll. A few years ago, my, my uh, sister-in-law, my brother's wife, started experiencing rapid cognitive decline and she had to go into a nursing home. He followed her there and lived in an assisted living apartment connected to the nursing home. And he would go every day and read to her, read poetry and, and novels and things to her. And then she died three years ago. Soon after her death, my brother fell and broke his hip. And then he began to experience rapid cognitive decline. Within a year, he was in the same nursing home where she had been. And he died there just four months ago. Now, his children who live in Australia and my wife and I are convinced that both my brother and his wife would have declined much more slowly had they lived where they could have had more interaction with other people. And that's why contrary to what one often hears should happen upon retirement, my wife and I feel that New York City is a great place, maybe the best place to spend one's later years. There's so much to do, there's so much stimulation. We could have retired to a home that we inherited from my family in California 20 years ago, but we had no desire to do that. And I'm so glad that we made that choice. 
I'm convinced we are much healthier, especially mentally, for having stayed in New York City. So keeping socially active and using one's brain as much as possible are definite determinants to rapid cognitive decline. And it's never too late to start slowing down that process. Now, another example, and this one is a little more dramatic, is what some neuropsychiatrists have achieved in addressing their work to certain areas of the brain in their clients. Dr. Daniel Siegel, who wrote a wonderful book called Mind Sight, describes in that book some of the seemingly miraculous work he has done. He describes working with a 92-year-old man. Now, this man's wife of more than 50 years told him that if he wanted to finish his life with her, he would have to go into therapy because he was impossible to live with. And so he did. And she and his children all felt that he was a curmudgeon. He was totally cut off from his feelings. He had very little compassion and empathy. And they had, he had been that way for as long as they could remember. Dr. Siegel observed that this man operated almost totally with the left side of his brain where concrete thinking occurs and seemed totally cut off from the right brain where there is emotion, creativity, flexibility. So he devised a therapeutic plan to help this man discover and use the right side of his brain. He saw him weekly for six months and the result was an amazing transformation. For the first time in his adult life, this man got in touch with his emotions. For the first time, he took an interest in music and art. And his wife and children were amazed. They said he was like a different person, more affable, more empathic, indeed pleasant to be around. And what's remarkable is that this change occurred at age 92. So you can understand why I'm saying it is never too late. We tend too quickly to assume that it's too late to make positive changes. And I think this is really true when dealing with older people who suffer from Alzheimer's disease. We tend to assume that once they've reached a level where they are very confused, they can't put coherent sentences together and at times don't even recognize friends or family, that then it's too late to expect any kind of meaningful interaction with them. Lynn Harper, who's a minister at Riverside Church has written a great book called about this, is called vanishing. She points out that, that we do a real disservice to Alzheimer patients when we assume that the real person we knew has vanished and that what is left is just a shell not worth the time and effort to really try to communicate with them. In her work in a nursing home with these kinds of patients for several years, she discovered that there are other ways of making connections with these Alzheimer patients. One thing that can be very helpful is the use of art and music. Now, there's been a, a great uh, uh, documentary on PBS a couple years ago, and which showed that in France, a group of psychiatrists took a group of six patients who had very advanced Alzheimer's disease, and they took them to an art museum. And they sat them down under a big painting. And none of these patients had spoken a coherent sentence for weeks or months. When they sat them in front of this painting, which showed a large man menacing a smaller man who had his hands over his face, the patients began to talk. One said, why is he doing that to him? Another commented, how's he going to defend himself? And others made similar comments. And if you'd been there walking through the museum and seen this scene, you would have had no idea that these six people were suffering from advanced Alzheimer's disease. Now, how is that possible? 
But one of the things that neuropsychologists have learned is that art and music stimulate a different part of the brain than simple speech does. I saw that with my brother in his later years. We would have Zoom sessions every Saturday with my wife and our family in New York, he in New Zealand in the nursing home, and his children in Australia. And toward the end, when he was having a hard time putting a whole sentence together, I would often play for him jazz videos that I had downloaded from YouTube. Uh, he was a great lover of jazz and connoisseur of jazz. And after watching a good jazz video of one of his favorite musicians like Benny Goodman or Louis Armstrong, he would say something like, that was really interesting, or especially the bass solo. And we would all be thinking, wow, is this the same guy who couldn't put a sentence together for the last 40 minutes? But somehow the music had touched another part of his brain. So this is another example of why we should be very careful about assuming that if it's too late, that it's too late in this case to make a meaningful connection with those who have rapid cognitive decline or Alzheimer's disease. But now let's say a word about how this applies to our day-to-day -day interactions. How often do we say things that didn't go the, do we say things that didn't go the way we wanted, and then we assume it's too late to change it? How many times do we send an email or text message with a disagreement, a complaint, or whatever, and then decide that it was a big mistake, but now it's too late? It's too late to do anything about it. Now, I think that happens a lot. Or the times when you wanted to say something to a friend or family member, but somehow missed the right moment, and afterward felt, well, I blew that. It's too late now. I think often we give up too easily. Yes, maybe you should have said I'm sorry yesterday when the moment seemed right. But the fact that you didn't does not mean you can't call that person today and say, I should have apologized yesterday. I'm so sorry, but let me do it today. And I think that works far more often than we expect. We find ourselves assuming it's too late much too quickly. Where this can take on huge importance is when we have done something that has done harm to another and we feel that we can't undo it. Thich Han addresses this issue in one of his talks using a very extreme example. He talks about an American Vietnam veteran who came to him shortly after the Vietnam War was over and said he was so filled with remorse that he had no choice but to commit suicide. During the war, this soldier had narrowly escaped death from enemy fire, which had enraged him in this small village. So he was so angry and desiring vengeance that he made five sandwiches that he poisoned, placed in a paper bag and placed them in the town square. And then he hid to see what would happen. A group of children found the sandwiches and ate them. And this man watched these five children die from the poisoned sandwiches that he had planted. This haunted him so badly that he could see no alternative but to take his own life. And it's hard to imagine a more dramatic example than this of appearing to be too late to do anything about a terrible act. But what Thich Nhat Hanh told him was this. He said, I want you to put all your money, all your time and energy into saving the lives of children who would die without your help. And for the next few years, the man did just that. And he was able to save countless children who would have died from disease or starvation in third world countries without his aid and without his help. 
This gave him a reason and a purpose to continue living. Now, Thich Nhat Hanh was, I don't think, was not trying to say that these good deeds made up for what the man had done before. You can't, you can't really make up for that. But he was saying that if the man had taken his life because it was too late, several more children would have died unnecessarily. Finally, I want to look at how this concept of it's never too late applies to larger national and international issues. Let's face it, the world is not in good shape today, right? Watching the news is very depressing. And given the irresponsible news that we get, which is driven totally by the desire for corporate profit, we would do well, I think, to limit the amount of time we spend watching the news. We look at and, and when we look at what's happening in the world, we look at what we're doing to the environment, destroying the water and the air, watching extreme weather patterns every year that should occur only every 100 years, seeing sea levels rise, flooding islands and killing coral and other sea life. It's hard not to find ourselves saying, it's too late to stop this monster that we have put into motion. For some things, it is too late. According to most climate experts, by 2050, most of the Caribbean, the Bahamas, Pacific Islands, and low-lying areas in Asia and Africa, not to mention Southern Florida, will be covered with water. And there's nothing we can do to stop that because of what we've already put into the atmosphere. But beware, I think we need to beware of falling prey to the assumption that therefore, it's inevitable that we will see an apocalypse by the end of this century. For one thing, we can't destroy the Earth. Whatever we do to the earth, it is going to recover over time. It might take a thousand years, but for the earth, that is little in light of the fact that the earth is a billion years old. But what we could do, though, is destroy humanity or make the earth so uninhabitable that we'd have the kind of apocalyptic scene that we see so often now in movies and novels and TV shows. But that apocalypse is not inevitable. We need to find better ways to appeal to the inner good in us, the, better, the Buddha nature, if you will, to increase the awareness that we are all linked in such a way that our very survival depends on our ability to affirm that link. Uh, you know, either we're going, to, so we're going to survive together or we're going to, we're going to perish divided. And that's a tall order. But I believe that more and more people are becoming aware of the fact that we have to survive together or we'll perish. When you look at the tremendous plagues, wars, natural disasters that humanity has overcome in the last 10,000 years, you see that human beings are amazingly resilient. Sometimes things may have to be pushed to the extreme before change occurs. And maybe we are close to that right now. The psychologist C.G. Jung talked about what he called the de profundis motif. I think I've probably mentioned this in other Dharma talks before. He felt that the de profundis motif was a universal phenomenon. De profundis means out of the depths. Like when the psalmist in the Old Testament says, out of the depths my heart cries to thee, O Lord. Jung felt that in history, in mythology, in psychic reality, there's a principle that when things get really bad, they have to hit a kind of bottom, and then there is a rebound effect in which things get better. He quotes examples from the Bible, from literature, from mythology, 
For example, the Israelites had to suffer plagues and famine before they could be delivered to the promised land. Jesus had to spend 40 days in the wilderness before he discovered his mission. St. Paul had to be blinded before he saw the light. The mythic swan has to be an ugly duckling before it can become the beautiful swan. The phoenix rises out of its own ashes. Or we must suffer the darkness and cold of winter before we can celebrate the light and beauty of spring. In 12-step programs, they often say you have to hit rock bottom before you can really master your addiction. There are thousands of examples of this theme which very well may be built into the very nature of the universe. I think it is. The good news is that things often do turn around. And it's important not to lose that perspective. And you know, there was something in the news this morning that, that right on that very theme. Uh, back in 1492, Pope Alexander I declared the doctrine of discovery, in which he said that any white people, if you will, going to, to find indigenous people in other parts of the world had a right to overtake that land, to, 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 uh, to colonize it, to take it over, and to destroy the other people because these indigenous people were less than human. Well, yesterday, Pope Francis has revoked the doctrine of discovery. For the first time in 500 years, he said, we can't do that. We cannot do that. Colonization is wrong. Seeing indigenous people as less than human is horrible and evil. And it took a long time to do that, but it's a wonderful thing that Pope Francis made this, doctor, this proclamation yesterday. You know, you can say how awful it is to suffer the dark and the cold of winter, or you can say how great it is to see the beauty of spring. There's a Native American plaque in the Rose Garden in Balboa Park in San Diego, which I love, which says, you can say how awful it is that this rose bush has thorns, or you can say how wonderful it is that this thorn bush has roses. Of course, we need to be aware of both the dark and the light. And the day, if the De Profundis motive suggests that the darkness must give way to the light, this doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't take away the need for human responsibility. We play a very important role in how and when things may turn around. Whatever may be happening on a national, universal, or even archetypal level in dark times, I think our Buddha nature requires that we commit, that we commit to doing whatever we can in our own small sphere, try to promote justice, unity, equality, peace responsible preservation of the earth. What each of us can do individually may not seem like much. I'm one sand in the large beach of humanity. I'm one of 8 billion people. But our cumulative effort can make a difference, like ripples in a stream. You know, the Zen proverb says, when a leaf falls in Tokyo, the earth trembles in Beijing. So what are some of the things that we can do today? I think we know. We know that we need to take voting very seriously. We need to vote into office those politicians who want to save humanity, who are unhappy with the fact that in a US economy of one and a half billion dollars over the next 10 months, 
800 billion of that is needlessly going to the military and 700 billion is going for everything else. That's obscene. We need to put effort into enabling leaders who are more devoted to peace than to fighting unwinnable wars. And we need to be more mindful on a day-to-day -day basis about what we buy, what we eat, how our actions as consumers affect the earth. I think that's where our efforts need to be. I think we know that, and I think we can do it. It's not too late. We're not doomed. We're not doomed to this kind of apocalyptic scene that I think we see too much on TV and in movies and things today. But we need to take very seriously the danger signs that are all around us today, and they do threaten to be harbingers of a catastrophic future if we don't try to do something about it. One of the major ways that I think our Buddhist faith can help us is in how we look at time. We have to be very careful not to dwell on the past, which is so easy to do, what has gone wrong, or to obsess about what can go wrong in the future, which also is very easy to do, especially if we watch the news. By living now, today, each day a new day, as best we can, I think we can find hope and meaning and avoid cynicism and despair. And I think that's very important at this point in our history. We need to trust that the winter will be followed by spring and just go out and look in the park right now and you're gonna see that. A mantra that I have learned from Buddhist teaching which will always be helpful to me is, this is the first day of the rest of my life. May I live it with compassion, empathy, and responsibility. Thank you for letting me share my thoughts with you this morning. Mm -hmm.